0: to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on this episode, we are discussing the launch of something new at IWF. Yes, the Independent Women's Law Center opened this week. The goal of the center is to influence the debate about women and the law and provide a distinctly female perspective on issues related to equal opportunity, individual liberty, freedom of association, and access to justice. Here to talk about it is the center's direct Director and frequent guest host of She Thinks, IWF's own Jennifer Braceras. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's great to be with you.
0: And before we jump into this, I just wanna give people a little bit of background on you. I know that you're often a guest host on the program, so they've heard from you, but about your background and how that relates to this center, I want everybody to know that Jennifer is a Boston Globe contributing columnist and a former commissioner on the US Commission of Civil Rights. She's a graduate of Harvard Law School and often writes about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. She's featured in different publications across the country. She's been a guest on Fox News and CNN. And so it really is a pleasure, Jennifer, to have you running the center. And I'm excited about what it's going to accomplish. I want to let everybody know you can find more information at IWF.org. There's also a newsletter you can subscribe to so you can keep up to date on what's going on. But we want to hear from you, Jennifer. Tell us about the center. I gave a little bit of background, but what was the impetus to push this forward? Why did IWF find that this was an important aspect to women and what women care about.
1: Well, I think it's really interesting because the Independent Women's Forum was founded in the aftermath of um, the Clarence Thomas hearings. And the reason it was founded was because a group of women who, who knew Thomas professionally and personally came forward to testify on his behalf and to assist him when he was wrongfully accused by Anita Hill. And afterwards, they decided that there needed to be an organization that spoke for conservative and libertarian and moderate women who did not feel represented by the National Organization for Women or the National Women's Law Center or any of those feminist groups on the left. So they founded IWF and... Um, I think Ricky Silberman who who was one of the founders it was always her goal to have IWF be active in the legal arena both with respect to nominations to the bench um, and with respect to filing briefs in in court and influencing the debate over legal policy that was always part of Ricky's vision. Um, and I think that, you know, as a small organization, IWF for many years was, was focused on policy, um, but it was always something I think Ricky had hoped the Center, the, the Independent it sorry, it was always something that Ricky had hoped IWF would do eventually.
0: Oh, it's very exciting. And I know Erin Howley, who is a senior fellow also at IWF, she's going to be the legal fellow also working with you on this. I'm curious just about your thoughts on the the court these days. It seems that more and more people are concerned that the judiciary is interpreting, not just interpreting laws, but making laws. Are you really going to focus on we need judges who interpret law and not make new law?
1: Yes, I mean, that's that's the constitutional role of the courts in our system. Um, it's supposed to be, the court is supposed to be what Alexander Hamilton called the least dangerous branch. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, if you go back to the time of the founding, there were concerns from people who were against the new constitution. Um, they had concerns that this unelected group of judges would become... Philosopher Kings and sort of dictate policy um, in a tyrannical way. And that was one of the concerns. But Hamilton said, no, that this will be the least dangerous branch, and we want to make sure that it remains so.
0: And I really love the statement that you released when this announcement came earlier this week. You said, for decades, progressive women's groups have occupied the legal field, urging courts to enact their agenda by judicial fiat and smearing nominees, um, and that this center, that these groups will no longer be able to claim to speak for all women. And I think that's such an important part of that. Obviously, um, we want that we want the ju- judges and the judicial system to t- to focus on interpreting the law, not making the law. But specifically, women think that, um, or a lot of people think that women have one perspective on how the court should rule. So it seems that the female focus and showing that we're different than pro- progressive women is an important aspect to this center.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the National Women's Law Center and the, the feminist progressive legal groups have attempted to speak for all women for a very long time. And as you know, you know, women like men are, are divided politically. And, you know, they're about 50-50 when it comes to, to politics. So um, those groups don't speak for, for all women when it comes to issues of, of legal policy. Um, and their view of what the courts should be is not the same view that many women hold, right? Many women understand that the role of the courts, is, is to interpret the law as written by legislative bodies and as handed down in the Constitution, and, and that it's, it's the role of our elected representatives to hash out um, compromise over, over hot-button political issues, not the role of the courts.
0: And how will the center decide what it focuses on? I know that you have already filed three briefs, um, and those were in August and and September, but how are you going to decide what cases you're going to focus on? Is, Is there a certain method that you're going to be following?
1: Well, we would like to weigh in on cases where we think we can make a distinct point. So there are a lot of other groups, women's groups, conservative groups, libertarian groups that that might file in cases, we think we're unique in that we are both a women's group and a conservative slash libertarian group. So we, we're we looking for cases where we think we can make a unique point. And one of those cases is currently before the Supreme Court. It's called Harris Funeral Homes. And it's a case about employment law where the court is being asked whether or not Title VII um, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex, applies to transgender employees. And a lot of conservative groups are weighing in saying, no, it doesn't apply to, um, to transgender employees. That The word sex in the legislation, when it was enacted in 1964, refers to biological sex. And, you know, if Congress wants to include gender identity or sexual orientation or, or any other category, it can do so, but it did not do so in 1964, and it's not for the court um, to, to enact that policy. So a lot of conservative groups are saying that. We thought we had a unique point to make, and that is this. It's that um, courts typically interpret employment discrimination laws the same way that they interpret Um, Title IX, which deals with discrimination in education. And one thing the court might not be thinking about, because it's not an issue that's directly before them, is that if they hold that Title VII includes gender identity or transgender status, that is also going to apply to women's sports under Title IX. And so what that means is, if the court rules for the transgender employee in this case, that means that... All athletic programs across the country will be forced to allow male body athletes who are transgender to compete on women's teams. And that is an unforeseen consequence that the the justices of the Supreme Court might not have thought about, um, but we're hoping to bring that to their attention.
0: And what I found interesting on the issue um, related to that, and when it comes to women's sports and whether or not transgender um, individuals will be able to compete as as a woman, is that even some so-called progressive feminist groups seem to align with the idea that that isn't fair, that we're seeing in some ways some interesting bedfellows come together on the issues related to to women's sports. Are you seeing that as well, that that even in the legal work and what you're doing, that you're seeing yourself partner with certain groups that traditionally wouldn't be on the same side of us on certain issues? There is
1: a group called the Women's Liberation Front, which is a, a leftist feminist group that is on our side of this issue for the reasons I just said, because they do not feel that, um, frankly, it's fair to allow male-bodied athletes to compete on female teams. Sadly, most of the feminist groups, the Women's Sports Foundation, and all the other groups that have so long argued for, um, you know, strong enforcement of Title IX seem to not care about the impact that this might have, and they've all filed on the other side. But, you know, our position is essentially that, look, this is a complicated public policy issue. It will have unforeseen consequences if the courts issue a sort of blunt, one-size-fits-all ruling, and that is precisely why the legislative bodies need to hash this out, because there may be reasons to prohibit discrimination against transgender people in terms of housing, for example, right? But those reasons, same reasons may not apply in the sports context or in the in a privacy context where a locker room is involved or you know every context is different employment housing education sports and so it's really for congress to take testimony and weigh the data and look at how these issues implicate you know people's rights in each context and it's not for the court to just automatically rewrite a statute in a way that will affect all of civil rights law.
0: And I think that's one of the reasons why this center is so important. Someone like myself, I am not a legal scholar. I've never gone to law school, don't have a law degree. Some of these cases can be so complex and you are weighing and balancing what makes sense to protect all people. And so I think that's one of the aspects in today's evolving, changing world. It's important to have a center like this to help us think through um, those issues. So first of all, thank you. I'm glad that the center is open. I'm excited to see what comes out But I want to ask you a question. I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this. I'm throwing you a little bit of a curveball. I'm really curious of your perspective of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And here's the reason why RBG, as she's known, she's become a superstar, so to speak. And not just the judicial judicial aspect, but a documentary has been made, a movie, Hollywood film was made about her. What is your perspective of just her life and how she's being praised in the way that she is? Do you think that that is well-deserved? considering she was the first female on the Supreme Court?
1: She was not the first female on the Supreme Court. Oops.
0: O- That's right. Sandra Day O'Connor. O- Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So,
1: I, I mean, I think it's a couple of things. Obviously, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is an amazing role model for women, regardless of whether you agree with her jurisprudential philosophy or her politics, um, but so was Sandra Day O'Connor, who, as we just said, was appointed to the court as the first woman by President Ronald Reagan. Um, and yet you don't see people driving around with, you know, bumper stickers with Sandra Day O'Connor's face on, it, on them or T-shirts or socks, right? There's a whole cottage industry of RBG products <laughs> um, that you don't see There are a lot of greeting
0: cards in DC. There's a company that's made a lot of greeting cards about her. So yeah, you you
1: see her everywhere. (laughs) Right. And I, I think, I mean, I think it's a couple of things. I think part of it is it's a different era with social media and, um, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor wasn't on the court in a time when, you know, we had social media and tweeting and all this stuff. Um, and I would also say, you know, it's somewhat of a coincidence that that RBG has a, a set of initials that are very close to, you know, a rapper's right, Notorious B.I.G., which is sort of how the whole cult of RBG got rolling. Right? People started calling her Notorious RBG. Um, so part of it is, is I think, those cultural differences. But part of it is what IWF President Carrie Lucas. Talks about in her book on progressive privilege, which is that, you know, because she's um, a more liberal justice who was appointed by a Democrat, she becomes this icon um, in a way that, that a woman appointed by President Ronald Reagan does not. So I think it's all of those things combined.
0: And of course, the Supreme Court came into focus in the past year, and even again um, a couple weeks ago, Justice Kavanaugh. We know the story behind him. There even call for calls for impeachment a couple, two or three weeks ago, against him. Once again, what has been IWF's perspective on now that we can take a step back? It's been a little bit over a year, and how his confirmation process was handled. Is that is that another reason why the center is here to try to stand up for for judges um, to? have a say or to at least be part of the, the public square and talking about these types of issues?
1: It is absolutely one of the reasons that that we decided to go forward and, and um, launch the center now. Um, like I said it was sort of always part of Ricky Silverman's vision for IWF but the urgency became clear last year Um, with the the nomination of Justice Kavanaugh and the way he was treated. And in fact, you know, it really um, illuminated the fact, it illuminated a pattern, frankly, that that started with Judge Robert Bork, um, continued with Justice Clarence Thomas, and really came to fruition um, with the Kavanaugh hearings. Because when you look at the totality of how the left behaves when, when conservatives are nominated to the court, you see that they will stop at nothing um, to prevent them from getting on the court or to bully them into you know maybe changing their, their jurisprudential views on things. I mean, this is all part of a pattern um, by the left that we feel we need to stand up
0: to. And what do you say to people out there who say, as a female, as you're talking about these issues, you mentioned Judge Bork, you mentioned Clarence Thomas, you mentioned um, Justice Kavanaugh, that how can you be for women and what women care about if you're supporting these men? What do you say to people who think that you you aren't fighting for women by having this perspective?
1: I would say that none of these men mistreated women, um, that That's false to begin with. Um, And I would say that there's nothing about their jurisprudential philosophy that is harmful to women. Um, These are people who understand what the proper role of a judge is, and that's not something that's harmful to women. In fact, it protects women's voice in the political arena, because if a judge or a group of nine unelected judges takes decisions out of the hands of the voters, that's taking power away from women as well as as well as all Americans. So I don't think it's inconsistent. Um and of course IWF is happy to support, you know, female nominees to the bench and to the Supreme Court who who subscribe to a restrained, originalist, constitutionalist philosophy of the court. I mean we're we'd be more than thrilled to see an appointment of a, of a constitutionalist female justice in the future, and, and I'm sure that we will. So it's, it's not that we supported Clarence Thomas or Brett Kavanaugh because they're men. We supported them because they were good judges who understand the proper role of the
0: courts. And as the Supreme Court is going to be figuring out what cases to take up, we'll of course have oral arguments again in the spring and decisions in June. What court cases are you most focused on? Because I know you're always giving us good information of what we should be paying attention to.
1: Well, we're focused this this fall. We're going to be hearing oral arguments in the um, Harris Funeral Homes case, which is the case I talked about that deals with. Um, whether or not the civil rights statutes apply to transgender individuals. Um, so that's one we're very focused on. Um, we're also, we filed a brief in the Supreme Court for cert, asking the court to take up the case of Americans for Prosperity versus Becerra, which is a case out of the Ninth Circuit involving donor privacy. Um, we think that's a very important issue. That's that's a case where the The California Attorney General, who at the time was Kamala Harris, um, wanted uh, organizations to hand over their donor lists, essentially. And Americans for Prosperity said, no, we're not going to do that. That violates the First Amendment right to give anonymously. And they lost in the Ninth Circuit, and now we're asking the Supreme Court um, to hear that case. And we think we have a, a unique point to make there because a lot of civil rights causes, including the suffragist movement, were, founded, were funded sorry, in part by anonymous donations. And so anonymous giving is a very important part of our history and uh, of the history of philanthropy and civic participation in this country. And so we're hoping the Supreme Court will, will take that case up and reaffirm the First Amendment right to anonymous giving.
0: And final question for you, what can people expect from the center? Obviously, um, you mentioned some things that you're going to be doing just in, the, in this um, podcast, this episode that we have today, but what other aspects is the center going to be focused on that the reason why people should subscribe to a newsletter? Why, what information can people get?
1: So we're going to be operating primarily in three lanes. We're going to be operating um, in the lane of appellate advocacy where we're going to file briefs in in cases, as we talked about. Um, We're going to be active with judicial nominations and confirmations, and we're going to continue to do a lot of the work IWF has already done in the legal policy arena. And what we really hope to do there is educate non-lawyers about why these legal issues are so important and sort of break them down for the general public. Um, So I think anybody who's, who's sort of interested in the law and how it affects their daily life and politics can find resources on our website that help explain legal or constitutional topics
0: was well, a non-lawyer myself as i already stated this is going to be extremely helpful so thank you so much it's so exciting this has has opened and thank you so much for chatting with us today Yeah, no problem.
1: It's been great talking to
0: you. And thank you all for joining us. Of course, once again, do go to IWF's website to check out the Independent Women's Law Center and subscribe to the newsletter. I also wanted to let you know of a great podcast you should subscribe to. In addition to She Thinks, it's called Problematic Women, and it's hosted by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans, where they both sort through the news to bring stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative leaning or problematic women. That is women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. Every Thursday, hear them talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics by searching for Problematic Women, wherever you get your podcasts. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so that you can let your friends know about She Thinks and let them know there are more episodes that they can listen to. So from all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening.